0: Our scripture this morning is Amos chapter 6, the 6th chapter of the prophet Amos. And our subject this morning is Woe on Israel. Amos chapter 6, Woe on Israel. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Kalna and see... From thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? He that put far away the evil day, and, excuse me, ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David that drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that shall go captive and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn him By himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain 10 men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up. And he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house and shall say unto him that is by the side of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no, Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plough there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Which ye rejoice, ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hemoth unto the river of the wilderness. Last week we noticed the woe of chapter 5, verse 18. It spoke of woe to them who thought, The day of the Lord would be good for Israel. They likely assumed that God would would do what he had done before, that he would rescue Israel, and that no matter how Israel suffered, its enemies would be destroyed, and somehow Israel would come out of it uh, being rescued at the last minute. Israel thought they had basically psychoanalyzed God. They figured they knew how God acted, they knew how God responded, they figured that he was always there to help Israel. Even in bad times, ultimately, God was going to do something miraculously to get Israel out of the military and diplomatic mess it was in. Instead, Amos said, the day of the Lord will be a dark day that will go from bad to worse. He said, it's like a man fleeing from a lion who runs into a bear. It's like escaping into a house and leaning on the wall to catch your breath and a snake comes out of a crevice and bites you. Chapter 6 is a much longer woe. It warns Israel that the security they felt was soon going to disappear. It tells them that they would be taken by force. He says most of them were going to die. Those who didn't die would, be, would die in, eventually in captivity. Amos warns those in the mountains of Samaria, quote, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. By chief he means the first or notable. This may refer to the nobles and the uh, rulers of Israel, but it probably also included the rich merchant class. We've said that the, uh, this was a period of unparalleled prosperity in the Northern Kingdom, which is one reason why they were kind of oblivious to the prophet. Things seemed to be going so well for them. They were enjoying the good life and the merchants really controlled the tenor of the culture as much as anyone because they were causing the, the material prosperity. So it likely included the merchants, the prominent men, the leaders, the, the also the the ones who were the fashion leaders, the ones others emulated. Amos also adds those in Zion. Of course, Zion was not in the northern kingdom, it was Israel. Is, Zion was the mount at Jerusalem where the temple was. So he briefly includes Judah in his warning. Remember, Amos was from judah but he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of israel those of both capitals were guilty of having a false sense of security and ultimately the prophets are warning both nations of their impending judgment amos criticizes the leaders of israel for their false sense of ease he's not just talking about their luxurious lifestyle they were financially at ease. They were at ease also, though, with their political ascendancy. This was the golden age of Israel. Assyria at the time was weak, and they had uh, trade that was advantageous to them. Militarily, they didn't have a problem with defense, so everything was going well with them. They were also at ease with their supposed religious orthodoxy, which was really apostasy. Even to the extent that Jehovah was recognized, it was really a very false worship. He was basically treated like one of the uh, Baals or lords. In verse 2, the people of Israel told told to consider three strong cities. Kalna, we're not sure what, that, where Kalna was or, or what city is referred to. A lot of the cities of the ancient world when they were destroyed. Uh, the name was lost with them, and it's, it's, it's sometimes unclear where a particular city was. Hamath was north on the Orontes River. Gath, though there's some de- debate even on where Gath is, we know it was one of the five chief cities of the Philistines, but many years earlier it had been taken by Uzziah. So apparently these are three cities that had come to an end, three once prominent cities that had come to an end. The question Israel is asked of these cities is, uh, are they better, or are they different than Israel and Judah? Are, are they going to be more blessed the, than Israel and Judah? The implied answer is Is no. These cities uh, aren't going to be treated any better or any different than will the cities of Israel and Judah. These cities were once strong, but they fell. Israel, of course, was was so strong, it was confident in its strength. Not just at this time, military strength uh, was sufficient. Its borders were bigger than it had ever been. Uh, They were materially prosperous. They were living the life of luxury because of the trade which went all the way from Egypt all the way into Mesopotamia. So they were at the crossroads of that part of the world. The implication is if these cities could fall, why are you at ease? Why are you so confident? Okay, so the point is really by implication that Israel was more blessed than these cities. But even though Israel had been blessed by God, it, it was the doing of God. They were not obedient and they were not faithful to the God that had blessed them. So if they had basically abandoned the God that had so blessed them, why shouldn't they, they fall just like these other cities? Why shouldn't they meet the same end as these cities? So this false sense of security is foolish. Verse 3 says it's because they put the day of accountability far into the future that they're actually inviting that day to come. They're snubbing their, um, you know, they're, they're snubbing God, basically. They're saying that God is not going to judge them. We can live like we want, we can rebel against God, and we're doing great. So we don't really need to think about the possibility of judgment. So they're, they're really causing the, the sitting or the seat of judgment to come near them by their attitude. Their foolish disregard for the possibility of God's judgment, God's displeasure on them, had caused this false sense of ease, which the prophet is really addressing. He pictures them laying on ivory beds, which is likely just what it implies, likely beds that were inlaid with ivory. They were enjoying luxuries on on their couches. They, They were feasting on the best lamb, and beef, they're pictured listening to the latest music, even inventing new instruments with a presumably new sound. It's This isn't, a con, by the way, a condemnation of musical instruments and in worship because this isn't worship that's even been referred to. It really is describing the uh, social elite's debauched entertainment. These new instruments, Probably meant that they felt that they were being avant-garde. They were trendsetters. They were creating new instruments, new music, new sounds, like just like contemporary music. It's if you if you notice that uh, the uh, oldies but goodies are always that which the current senior citizens enjoyed. So, move, um, music from the fifties and sixties is you know is is popular now. But music from the 20s and the 30s and 40s is you know, not particularly popular because that generation is largely gone. Music is largely disposable. Popular music is largely disposable. But they thought that they were really something because they were creating new instruments and, and a new sound. So the, the, the picture given is really of a very frivolous people who had this sense of being self-important. That whatever they created was, you know, the in thing. They're pictured drinking bowls of wine. Of course, they didn't use cups or glasses then. That's how they drank wine. They put the uh, finest available oils on themselves. Oils were very popular in that entire part of the world, um, and you can imagine that some of these oils were extremely. Uh, costly and so it was a very, you know, a fashion statement to be putting the most expensive oils on your body. In the midst midst of all this self-indulgence they are never bothered by what the prophet calls the affliction of Joseph. Joseph was the father of Ephraim and Ephraim is a name often given to the northern kingdom because it was the largest of the northern tribes. So the affliction of their father Joseph meant their brethren was, were afflicted. These elite who felt that they were in control never looked on how the masses were doing, how they were using uh, other people. And much of the prophet's condemnation is the economic um, mistreatment of uh, men by the well-to-do. This isn't, by the way, a condemnation of capitalism at all, it's a a condemnation of using capitalism as a justification for violating God's laws, for instance, in the areas of debt or uh, fraud in business. Uh, Capitalism doesn't create morality. Capitalism works, but it, it requires an ethical people, as do all systems, economic or otherwise, without biblical ethics, any system is going to result in injustice. In verse 7, God says, when the captivity comes, the rich are going to be the first to go. They were the elite. They were the preeminent in society, in business, and politics. So God says, you'll be among the first to go into captivity. In verse 8, God swears by himself yet again. The God of armies says he hates the houses and cities Of Israel far from here they were expecting God to rescue them somehow if they were going to undergo judgment God they figured was always going to there to rescue them they figured that that was what just what God did but God says I I hate your houses I hate your cities they represented the pride and arrogance of a rebellious people so he abhors their excellency all the things which made them proud which made them arrogant, which made them independent of God, God held in contempt. He'll destroy the people, and he'll destroy the objects of their pride. We're told elsewhere even the stones of Samaria will be overturned. They'd be rolled down. And in fact, the ruins of Samaria are just a few rocks. There's not much left. No, None of the buildings survived during the Assyrian uh, capture. They completely destroyed the uh, city of Samaria, uh, the fortifications of Samaria, the great houses. None of these survived. And so we can only imagine what these houses and palaces and so forth were like. Verses 9 through 10, we have a picture of a city besieged. And it's very, uh, a very gruesome one. It says if there are ten in a house, they will all die. Ten is often used as a number of fullness. It says a large, full household will be wiped out. And in fact, it says those that survive will go into captivity. It says a house full of dead will have their remains burned by the next of kin. Now, this again, it pictures a very uh, ugly scene. The Jews usually buried their dead. They didn't burn their dead. But, of course, cemeteries were outside the city walls. So burning the dead means, you know, probability that it's picturing a time when the city was besieged, when people could not leave the city. They could not go outside the walls. The cemeteries were unavailable, so the dead had to be burned. The picture is probably one of mass dying inside the walls of a, of a besieged city uh, and it's it's basically saying the the next of kin will have to be forced it says your family to these people you do the, the duty you burn you burn their bodies we can't we can't have their bodies laying around so you're responsible you take charge of it at the end of verse 10 there's a statement that has been taken several ways the statement is hold thy tongue for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord the question is why is this survivor who's burning the dead bodies of his kinfolk say that we must not mention the name of God we can only speculate and commentators have varied on, on you know what is implied by that one possibility is he's saying there's he's still defiant says there's no need to call on Jehovah uh, more likely, he's implying it's too late to call on Jehovah because this is the judgment of Jehovah. And yet another possibility would be, uh, is, you know, don't call on Jehovah because he's angry at us and it would only provoke him to more anger to now beg him for mercy at this late day. Verse 11 makes clear that this is all of God. It's not an accident of history it's easy for us when we read the bible to say well obviously because it's in the bible this is an act of god god's describing it to us because he was involved in it but we assume that the events that happened in our lifetime the earth world changing events that the thing that changes empires the coming and going of of rulers is somehow not so much in god's control That even this devastation of Israel, God's own people, is under the command of God. Israel was no longer part of God's plan for his covenant, at least as a a national entity. Verse 12 then again returns to Israel's perversion of justice. This was the evidence that they were not God's covenant people. They were violating his law even to one another. Obviously, when we violate God's law, where much of God's law deals with how we live with one another. So God has said you know, that they've offended him, that they're apostate, but in the, in the practical outworkings, it means that men are violating the rights of others. And in their prosperity, they were using their wealth, their power, and their success for injustice. Or in unrighteousness. Verse 12 asks, do horses run on slippery rocks or will men plow that rock with their oxen? The obvious answer even to a simpleton is, is no. It's equally stupid, however, for the people of Israel to have turned from God to idols. It's equally stupid for them to pervert justice and think God would somehow bless them. It's stupid to think that the day of the Lord would be a blessing. Well, it's equally stupid to think that they had finally arrived and to take pride in the culture that made them rich and powerful. So it's also no accident of history we could say that Amos spoke to Israel in the period of its greatest power, its greatest um, wealth, its greatest period of ease. He spoke to them in at a time when they were least likely to pay any attention to God's prophet. So Amos ends this discourse by reiterating God is going to bring a nation against them, and that nation will totally dominate them. It says that invasion would be felt from Hamath on the northern boundary to the river or valley of the wilderness, which may refer to a gorge south of the Dead Sea. And that was south of Judah. Judah was also impacted by the Assyrian invasion, but it, it did not fall. In Proverbs 8, we're told, all they that hate me love death. The prophecy to Israel by Amos reminds us of this. They were hateful of god hateful of orthodoxy hateful of proper worship and in effect they were sealing their own fate by the rebellion against god rebellion against god is not only personally self-destructive but ultimately it is cultural suicide then and now let us pray our most good and gracious godly heavenly Father, we praise you for that you are who you are. We praise you that you're a holy God and a just God. We praise you that we can understand right from wrong because you've revealed it to us and we we pray that you'd help us to acknowledge to ourselves that that we so often violate your holiness, that we so often feel that we can go about in doing what we want and thinking that somehow we'll be blessed because there are other others who are worse than we are. We pray that you would uh, help us to realize that uh, your law is absolute and your requirements are absolute and violating your law brings judgment. And we know that even as we live in in a culture now, in a civilization that was once Christian and that is now increasingly apostate to its very core, we also are deserving of of, uh, judgment. We really ultimately pray for revival. We pray for your kingdom to be advanced, and we know that that is the only alternative ultimately to to judgment and being part of this dustbin of history. We pray that in some small way we as individuals and as families can further your kingdom. We pray that a revival would come in, in the West, and we thank you for parts of the world where there is a revival of faith, and we pray for its increased orthodoxy. And uh, it's, it's uh, spread so that uh, more and more people would bow the knee to you and to your son, uh, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. With the Lucky Landslots, Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.